as we were sitting there meditating, there was quite a lot of noise, wasn't it, from the builders downstairs, and I was really pleased to hear that noise. Often when I'm here, I get a bit irritated with the amount of noise going on. Uh, but this time I was really pleased to hear it. I, I didn't have any problem with it because I know that uh, the builders are making downstairs better, the, the reception area. Specifically, they're, they're making it better for us, the Sangha, to come together. So it's the sound of change, and it's the sound of change for the better. And I was even, my mind went on a bit from there, thinking it's uh, the sound of change is the sound of emptiness. It's the sound of shunyata. Um, so if these sounds come bursting in as I'm speaking, we can be pleased about that because it's all good. It's all for the good. Uh, so yeah, this talk, as uh, thank you very much for the introduction, by the way. The, the talk is called From Dham- Kama Niyama to Dharma Niyama. And uh, I'm hoping that you're all familiar with ba- uh, Sabuti's seven papers, uh, that you've read them, uh, hopefully even studied them, um, because I think they're really important. Uh, very, very important for us, uh, those of us who are order members and those of you who want to join the order. Uh, they're the basis uh, on which the order is built. Uh, in, I think it might be the first paper, uh, which is actually a conversation between Bhante Sangharakshita and a few of his close disciples, a few senior order members. Um, he lays out what the order actually is. And uh, any Sangha... He said, if you look back over the history of uh, Buddhism, any particular sangha um, is, uh, comes around a teacher, someone with deep insight, deep wisdom. And that teacher's particular exposition of the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching. Um, his particular or her particular interpretation of the Dharma and the practices that come from that interpretation, all the whole, Buddhist, the whole of Buddhist history, you could say, is the, the uh, development of new ways of looking at the Dharma, new teachers with their own particular insight into the Dharma, and then teaching from there. And um, in those seven papers, Sabuti lays out Bhante's particular interpretation of the Dharma and the practices that come from there. So it's really important for us to, um, to get to know those. And one of the things I like to do is to trace back uh, from Bhante's ideas, trace them back into uh, traditional texts, both early text, um, the Shravakayana texts from the Pali Canon, but also Mahayana texts. I must confess, I don't really, I'm not so familiar with the Vajrayana texts, but one could do that too. Um, tracing them back to those uh, sources because I think some people imagine that Bhante has just made it all up. It's a made-up dharma. But it's not, actually. Um, it, it can all be traced back to uh, the various traditions of Buddhism. And in the third of the three Pure Land Sutras, the Guan Jing, uh, often translated as the Visualization Sutra, uh, the Buddha in that sutra uh, teaches Queen Vaidehi 16 visualization practices. It's quite long involved practices. The, most of the sutra is taken up with the uh, description of these 16 visualizations. And at the end of every one of them, uh, the Buddha says, this is the correct way to do the visualization. Any other way is incorrect. Now, what's interesting about that sutra is that the descriptions, the, the, six, the 16 meditations are mainly descriptions of the Pure Land and Namitabha. 
And they are different descriptions of the Pure Land than the ones from the two Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras. In fact, the two Sukhavati Vyuhas paint slightly different pictures of the Pure Land too. So three different visions of the Pure Land. Is whoever wrote the Guan Jing, the Visualization Sutra, do we imagine that he's saying, no, this is correct, the two Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras are incorrect? No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, if you want to practice these particular meditations, you'll be doing so within a Sangha, a collection of people who are also practicing these meditations. And for that Sangha to stay together and to be able to speak to each other in the same language, you need to be doing the same practices. So it's not that the visualizations are correct in that this is the only way to visualize Sukhavati. But if you're going to be part of this particular Sangha, the, the Sangha that comes, that grows around the Guanjing, these are the ways you need to do it. Otherwise, we, after a few years, we won't be able to talk to each other because everything will be so different. So uh, com- commonality of practice, very important. So in those uh, seven papers, um, uh, Sabuti, Sangharakshita, discuss the five strands of conditionality, the five niyamas, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. And the karma niyama and the dharma niyama are two of those strands of conditionality. The karma niyama being the, uh, what you might call the ethical strand of conditionality, and the dharma niyama being the transcendental strand. So what I'm going to do today is um, I'm going to talk firstly about the Karma Niyama and Dharma Niyama from the point of view of the Pali Canon. And then I'll talk about the Mahayana and particularly the one of the Pure Land Sutras. So um, you, I'm sure you're all familiar with the spiral path that begins with uh, Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, leading to uh, faith, sadha, leading to joy, to rapture, and so on and so on and so on. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. Well, that is just one of a number of uh, positive conditionality lists that the Buddha gives in the Pali Canon. That's just one of them. It's just one example. And I'm going to talk about another one that comes from the Chaitanya Sutta. This writing is fairly small. You may not be able to see it, but don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you as we go through what, what the words say there. Uh, written rather beautifully by uh, Ratnasagra. It would have looked really bad if I'd have written to it, written it so he's done that for me. Uh, and I have a feeling that, one, that I've missed one out. There's only nine here, and I think there's another one which I've missed out, but we'll, we'll come on to that when we come on to it. So let me just go through it. So the first one is virtue, uh, sila, um, uh, virtue or ethical practice. And out of your ethical practice, out of virtue, comes... Freedom from remorse, that's uh, the, the usual translation of the next term, freedom from remorse. And I put clear conscience because that's the kind of way we think of it, isn't it? When you've got a clear conscience, when you have um, not done anything unethical, you have a clear conscience. And then this leads to all the other things, all the other 
um, steps which you're all familiar with from the other spiral path which you're more familiar with. Then comes joy, then comes rapture, then serenity, then absorption, uh, samadhi. Uh, Sometimes it's translated as concentration. I prefer the term absorption. Uh, Out of that comes... um, Oh, there's the one that's missing. Uh, Before disenchantment comes uh, knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Yeah. Pity this is on film, isn't it? It's going to be there forever now. Uh, (laughs) Knowing and seeing things as they really are comes from absorption, doesn't it? And out of that comes disenchantment. Uh, This is a lovely word, actually. It's one of my favourite words, disenchantment. The... Um, the connotation is that uh, up until now you've been rather enchanted by the world. You've been under a kind of an enchantment and now you're disenchanted. You're no longer fooled by appearances. Then comes dispassion and then knowledge and vision uh, of liberation, knowledge and vision of being liberated. I have a feeling there might be another one here, Vimuti, Doing very well here, am I? But I think Vimuti, freedom is here, then knowledge and vision. I'm not so concerned with each one of these, actually. This is more like just an overall view of the spiral path leading to full awakening. What I am concerned with is how you get from one to another, how that works, the kind of mechanism, in a way, of how that works. Um... And this, as I say, is the Chaitanya Sutta, and it's very interesting. The reason I've chosen this particular spiral path is because in it, the Buddha makes it clear how you make the transition from one to another, how you move forward in the spiritual life. One of the things that I've been interested in for a number of years is um, how do we change? What brings about change? And here we're, uh, I'm, I suppose what I'm interested in is, how does the karma niyama work? How do you become happy because you're practicing ethics? How does that actually work? Not why does it work that way, it just does. Uh, the Buddha didn't concern himself with why, why the universe is made up of the way it is. That he, he wasn't concerned with that, he was just concerned with how and what um, and uh, from his experience, um, w- before he was uh, a Buddha, when he was a Bodhisattva, he practiced ethics and he noticed that led to freedom from remorse or a clear conscience. And then he noticed that when he had a clear conscience, he was happier, joy arose, and so on and so on and so on. So this is the description of his own experience, which is interesting that all... Um, all doctrine, all Buddhist doctrine, what some people might refer to as theory, is actually the Buddha's experience put into words. So let's begin. It's interesting also that we started this morning with the refuges and precepts. The refuges, going for refuge, committing oneself to practicing the spiritual life, then the refuges and precepts. The, uh, the vow, in a way, the, the intention to practice ethically, which leads to virtue. Yeah. So, how do you get from virtue to clear conscience? Well, you could say, well, it happens naturally. 
when you have a clear con- when you practice ethical practices, when your ethical practice is good, when it's pure, you just have a clear conscience. And that's exactly what the Buddha said, in fact. So let me just read you. I'll see if I can read without my glasses. No. Just need to put my glasses on. So, when he's given this list, he then goes over it again and says the same thing between each one, how this one comes from this one and this one comes from this one. So let's just start with virtue. How does virtue lead to clear conscience? He says, For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. Now, an act of will can also be uh, translated as thought. So you could say there is no need for an act of will or there is no need for this particular thought. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. Did you get that or shall I read that again? Read it again. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will or the thought, may freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. What he's saying is very simple, that when you're really virtuous, clear clear conscience or freedom from remorse arises naturally from there. You don't have to make it happen. So this is quite interesting. For a person endowed with, and it's the same with each of these, but let's stay with these two for the time being. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, consummate, bring to perfection in a way. So it's not that this arises naturally just out of a little bit of this. What you really have to do is work on this a great deal because, as you know, it's difficult to get to the point where you're consummate in virtue. To get to this next stage, you have to be consummate in virtue. You have to really work on it. So the work is in really working on the stage that you're actually at. What that means is you're not trying to reach for a stage that you're not ready for. You're not trying to get to this. You're not trying to get there in a grasping kind of way. You're not trying to move towards another state. You're working with yourself as you are in the present moment. So if we really work on our ethical practice and bring our virtue to consummation so that we're really, really ethical, we have no unethical thoughts, no unethical actions, no unethical speech, then clear conscience arises naturally. And the word naturally, or in the nature of things uh, in that translation, is dhammatar. So it's dhamma, the Pali version of dhamma, with ta, T long A at the end. And it's translated either in the nature of things or naturally. It happens naturally. What's interesting about this, I find, is 
it shows you how the spiritual life works, the, as it were, the mechanics of it. Maybe not the mechanics of it, but how, I don't know, how, how you grow, what that, the nature of that growth is, is that you work on the stage. So, effort. You make conscious effort to be ethical. You work at it. But you don't work at trying to get to the next stage. The next stage arises naturally from you just working on this. Yeah? And the same here. When you've got a clear conscience, freedom from remorse, you just really carry on working at that uh, freedom from remorse. In a way, you're carrying on this work, but you're making sure that that's maintained. You could say that this is development and this is maintenance. You're just maintaining that clear conscience and enjoying it. Enjoy. Yeah? So joy comes from the clear conscience naturally. So you could say that the, the progress through the spiral path uh, eventually to awakening is one of uh, a twofold kind of dynamic. Uh, the first is you making conscious effort, voluntary. Uh, at the recent order weekend, um, uh, Kamla Sheila made a very interesting point. He said the word devotion uh, comes from the word vow. So all those words like devote, uh, volunteer, uh, votary, uh, etc., vow, all come from the same root, which is to do. It's a volition. It's a volitional, volition. You do something. So that's really important, as we know. So you do. But you don't do so you get to the next stage. You just do this, and this happens naturally. So the second part of the dynamic is... As a result of you volitioning, you making a conscious effort, then the next thing happens to you. Yeah? The next thing is involuntary. So there's a transformation aspect that when you work on your virtue, that's transformed into freedom from remorse or clear conscience. And then when you really work on that, you really just sit with your clear conscience and meditate with that. Then that clear conscience transforms itself into joy and so on and so on and so on. So the spiritual life is made up of these, this dynamic of us working, consciously working at something, and that being transformed into something else which is outside of our control. Yeah? So this is within our control. But the next one happens to us. It's outside of our control. So involuntary effect. So voluntary effort followed by involuntary effect and so on and so on and so on. Many years ago, probably 15, could even be getting on for 20 years ago now, uh, Sangrachta recommended a book uh, for us all to read. Um, and at that time, I was a member of the Preceptors College Council, and we studied parts of this book. And the book uh, was a book about, not Buddhism, but it was about ancient um, Greek and Roman philosophy. It was called Philosophy as a Way of Life by Pierre Addo. Now, Pierre Addo uh, considered the ancient philosophies not to be philosophy in the modern sense of the term, but to be spiritual traditions. So there's a whole spiritual tradition based on the Platonic, the Socratic dialogue, uh, the, the, uh, the Stoics, 
they had their own spiritual tradition, the Epicureans and so on. They were all spiritual uh, traditions. And there were two aspects to each of these traditions. There was philosophy as discourse, which is the teachings that the philosophy was based on, and then philosophy as a way of life, which was the practices which came out of those teachings. And uh, in a section called, in a chapter called uh, Spiritual Exercises, uh, Haddo uh, discusses four spiritual exercises from the ancient uh, Greek philosophical traditions. And one of them was, he called, learning to dialogue. And this is about the Socratic dialogue as a spiritual exercise. If you've read any of the Socratic dialogues, you'll have noticed that sometimes they're not very logical, that one thing doesn't seem to logically follow from another. And this, in a way, um, backs up Haddo's contention that uh, those philosophies weren't logical philosophies. They were spiritual. And the dialogue between Socrates and his interlocutor was... Socrates trying to get the person he was speaking to into a specific state of mind in which they would change. That's the whole point of those dialogues, according to Addo. And one of the things he says there has stayed with me since, and just this morning before I came, I just checked that I'd got it right, and I have got it right. He says, and the point of the dialogue, as with every spiritual exercise, is to let yourself be changed yeah is to let yourself be changed and that's what I think we have to do as we're moving through uh, the stages of the spiral path we work we work we work but then we have to let the next stage happen to us we need to let ourselves be changed we need to let virtue change transform itself into clear conscience and then clear conscience to transform into joy and so on and so on and so on so I think this is how the karma niyama works um, anything else I want to say about that say again the four exercises do you know the list the four four exercises you want to know what they are? Uh, if I can remember, there's learning to live, learning to dialogue, learning to read, and learning to die. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, there was something else I wanted to say about this. Let's see if I can just remember what it was. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, many, many years ago, Sangha actually gave a talk called A System of... Um, was it a system of spiritual discipline? A system of meditation. A system of meditation. And he, he talked in that lecture about the five main meditation practices that we do in the order. Uh, mindfulness of breathing, metabhavana, six-element practice, sadhana, and just sitting. Just sitting is a very important practice because... And you can see where it fits in here, that you're working at something and then you just sit, you... you that just sitting is the practice where you allow something to happen. Yeah? You don't try and make anything happen. You've done that work up to now. You might have done, them, you might have done a, uh, a bhavana practice like the mindfulness of breathing or the metta bhavana or something. But then every now and then you just have to stop working, stop making effort and allow 
things to be as they are. And it's that point where you allow this stage to transform itself into that, that stage. Okay, so now you know, we know, that there's a very important uh, distinction just about here. And here should be uh, knowing and seeing things as they really are. So insight happens here on the basis of absorption. So again, um, insight happens to us on the basis of absorption. Of course, we'll need to be reflecting on some um, one of the Buddhist teachings. Let's say all compounded things are impermanent. That might be your topic. So you, you absorb yourself in meditation. And then you, you allow into your mind one of the Buddhist wisdom teachings. And you might think, ah, but in that case, then you are doing something. Yes, you are. But for that insight to really happen, this is very interesting, isn't it? What you do is you reflect on this wisdom teaching. All compounded things are impermanent. Yeah, they are. I'm impermanent. I'm going to die, etc., etc. But then you have to allow that practice to change you. You have to allow insight to arise within you. So again, even between these two, you've got this dynamic of effort, voluntary effort, followed by involuntary result. So this is karma up to here, up to and including absorption, and then dharma happens from insight up to full awakening. And as you know, the karma can go both ways. You can be moving upwards or you can move back down again. And you may have experienced this. Uh, You've got all the way to absorption into jhana, maybe first, second, maybe even third, fourth jhana, who knows. You get up there, maybe on retreat, and then a few days later, uh, you're in the right state and you've lost your virtue, you've got annoyed with someone and you've done something unskillful and back you are again. So the karma goes both ways. It's a two-way street. The dharma only goes one way. It's a one-way street. It's like the arrow of time, which only goes forwards. So the dharma is well, like that. It only goes one way. And the point here is what Bante has called the point of no return. The point of no return. Uh, and in Mahayana texts, it's called irreversibility, avivartika. Uh, the point at which you cannot fall back in your progress towards awakening. And this is obviously a very important, crucial point in our spiritual life. One of the things I find very interesting about this is that it's not only the point at which you cannot fall back, it's the point at which you cannot help but move forwards. So it's a dynamic thing. Yeah, you can't help but move forwards. And um, this is expressed in the, the metaphor that's used in uh, early Buddhism, stream entry. At this point, you enter the stream. So you're flowing. The, the stream is now f- taking you. You're flowing towards, let's say, the ocean of enlightenment. And Banti, in one of his early lectures, uh, spoke about a gravitational pull. I expect you're familiar with this, that all the time when you're, when you're trying to practice all this, you're making efforts based on faith, really. It's faith that's keeping you going through all these. 
but all the time the gravitational pull is exerting its pull backwards. So much as you try, you make efforts, you can fall back. And we know this because we probably do it quite a lot, make a bit of effort and then fall back again. But from here, it's as if the gravi- there's a gravitational pull here. And in this um, lecture, Banty spoke about it's, it's like a rocket taking off from Earth. An awful lot of effort is expended in that rocket getting away from the Earth's gravity. But then it goes beyond the Earth's gravity and it's pulled by, let's say it's on its way to the moon. At a certain point, the moon's gravity becomes stronger than the Earth's gravity. So now it's on a trajectory at which it cannot go back to the Earth. It can't fall back to the Earth. So that's the, that's the image that Banty uses. And it's interesting, both of these images, stream entry and gravitational pull, suggest an outside force, don't they? They suggest an outside force working on you which is an interesting way to think about it, especially for us modern, contemporary, Western Buddhists who often think of the spiritual life in terms of the mind. It's going on inside, everything's going on inside. But these images at least suggest that there's an outside force exerting its influence on us. And we can see that, you know, we go out here on a weekend and there's all sorts of things exerting their force on us. So we might go away in a pretty good state, you know, from here, and we see an advert, and oh, immediately you, the, the world is pulling you back to the earth. Yeah. So what I'm interested in is the idea of dharmaniyama. Dharmaniyama is the, the conditionality which is infused with wisdom, infused with knowing and seeing things as they really are such that you cannot fall back. Now, you could look at it purely psychologically, this idea of not only not falling back, but not being able to not move forwards. You know, you can't help but move forwards. Um, you could look at it, it's, it's a bit like the house of cards syndrome, that you, you build this house of cards, and then you, you just have to take one card away, and the whole lot falls, falls to pieces. So you could look at it in those terms, that once you've seen through disenchantment, once you've seen the, through the veil of um, ignorance, then you can't help but start seeing other bits of reality. It all starts to become clear to you. Um, so you could see it in, in purely those terms, but um, the Mahayana doesn't see it just in those terms. It sees it in terms of a, an outside force as well. And when Bhante talks about the Dharma Niyama, he's also, in a way, talking about a suprapersonal force. The Dharma Niyama is a suprapersonal force. Now, some people don't like this because it sounds a bit too theistic. Um, uh, and this is where some people think Bhante's just making up a new kind of Dharma. But uh, you don't really, I would say, you don't really find this idea of a suprapersonal force in the Pali text but you definitely find it in the Mahayana. And Bhante is at least a Mahayana Buddhist as much as he's a Shravakayana Buddhist. So um, it has a very respectable pedigree, I would say, a super-personal force. And you get it in many Mahayana sutras, but I've just been writing a book about the three Pure Land sutras, so I'm going to speak about those to end with. And... um, I'm going to speak about one of them, actually. I could speak about any one of them, but um, 
time is getting a bit short now. I've been going on for a long time. So I just want to say uh, just a few words about the shortest of the three, um, the shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, which is only about six pages long. And um, what happens there, the, 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 uh, the structure of the sutra is very simple. Um, the Buddha speaks to Shariputra. And he describes, in the first half of the sutra, he tells Shariputra about Amitabha's pure land, Sukhavati, and he describes it in the first half of the sutra. He describes the jewel trees and the birds, etc., etc. But then the second half of the sutra, he tells him how we can go about, what are the practices that we need to do to be born in Sukhavati. And then there's a long section where the Buddha starts talking about all these other Buddhas all over the universe. Um, I think it's 39 of them all together. He names. He names these Buddhas. And each of them has their own uh, Buddha field. It doesn't say whether they're all pure or impure. Just they have their own Buddha field. At the end of each of these sections, he says... Let's see if I can... You should trust in this discourse on the Dharma called Embraced by All the Buddhas, which praises inconceivable qualities. Now, I've just said the text is called the Shorter Sukhavadi Vyuha Sutra, but now the Buddha gives an alternative title for this sutra, which is Embraced by All the Buddhas. Later, he goes on to say that the progress of all those who have done these practices and been born in the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, I'll tell you what the practices are in a moment. The progress of all those is that they will become irreversible. Yeah? So what that means is that to be embraced by all the Buddhas is to become irreversible. So it's an interesting way of seeing this, isn't it? This is the point of irreversibility. And at this point, the Dharmaniyama takes over. At this point, you're embraced by all the Buddhas. Now, it's a very interesting. The, the, the text, the, especially the two Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras, are quite early Mahayana texts. And what that means is they're very non-technical the point of irreversibility, avavatika, later on in the Mahayana tradition became very technical. It became the stage at which um, uh, you had the great insight called Anuttapatika Dharma Kshanti, which means something like um, it's when you realize that in reality no things are born and no things die. Yeah. So it's a no-thingness kind of insight, Anuttapatika Dharma Kshanti. And this comes at the eighth Bhumi, the eighth great state, the Bodhisattva stage. And at that point, you become irreversible from supreme enlightenment. But these early texts, the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras, knew nothing of that. Um, in these early texts, irreversibility meant you were irreversible from enlightenment. So it's pretty much the same idea as here. Um, so, 
to reach that stage is to be embraced by the Buddhas. Now, embraced is um, parigraha. So it, you'll know this from your um, uh, studies of the uh, Yogacara. Parigraha is to embrace, is to grasp. So you're grasped by all the Buddhas. So you're in the loving embrace of the Buddhas. And uh, another interesting thing about the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras is they're, they're pretty much um, non-cognitive. They have a non-cognitive way of talking about the spiritual life. What I mean by that is when we get to this stage, insight, knowing and seeing things as they really are, I think probably most of us understand that in very cognitive terms. That at this point, you now know something, knowing and seeing things as they really are. You know something that you didn't know there. Uh, all compounded things are impermanent. Now you really know that in a way that you didn't know it there. And it's the knowing that makes you irreversible. That I think we probably see it in those terms. Um, but the um, Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras, they don't really do that. And they, it's, another interesting thing about them is there's, you know, in our movement, I think most contemporary Western Buddhist movements, there's um, almost a preoccupation with the self and overcoming the self. And the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras and the Guanjing, they just don't bother with the self. They just don't think about it. They don't talk about it hardly at all. And it's in the, the shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, the self and overcoming the self is just not mentioned. So it's quite interesting that for the shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, the point of irreversibility is to be embraced by the Buddhas. So it's a volitional change. That great change that we're working towards from Karmaniyama to Dharmaniyama. For the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, it's not a change in knowledge, it's a change in volition. You change from working yourself, what later Pure Land teachers called self-power, to letting go into other power. And other power is the embrace of all the Buddhas. So, I'm going to finish by talking about what I've um, identified in the Shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra as a five or six stage practice to get born in, to become born in the Pure Land. And to become born in the Pure Land is to become irreversible. You could say that Sukhavati is the stage of irreversibility. In fact, on my wall, my shrine, I've got a really big uh, reproduction of a painting of the Pure Land. And right at the bottom of it, there's a fence. It's a red and gold fence. And the Pure Land is behind the fence. And the fence represents the stage of irreversibility. Once you go beyond that fence, you cannot fall out of the Pure Land. Yeah? So it's the stage of irreversibility. So when, when the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras talk about being born in the Pure Land, what they're really talking about is um, spiritual rebirth after spiritual death. Going back to the great, five great stages of the spiritual uh, life, you've got um, integration, positive emotion, spiritual um, death, and spiritual rebirth. And you've got that in, in the Pure Land Sutras. So let me try and find it. Won't be hard to find because it's only six pages long.
Okay. So the first thing is, living beings, Shariputra, should cultivate a heartfelt desire for that Buddha field. So that's the first thing you need to do. Heartfelt desire to be born in that Buddha field. A vague longing to be born in that Buddha field won't work. It needs to be a heartfelt desire. And heartfelt desire is Shraddhapa's translation of pranidhana. Now, you've probably come across the word pranidhana in your studies uh, in Sangharakshita's um, lecture series on the Bodhisattva ideal. He discusses this. Pranidhana is the Bodhisattva vow. Vow, yet again. Volition. Uh, here, it's not necessarily the Bodhisattva vow, but it, it is the heartfelt desire is a vow. It's a definite decision that you've made and you're basing your life on that decision. Then he says... Living beings with only a few roots of virtue will not be born in that Buddha field of the Tathagata Amitayas. In other words, to put it positively, you need many, many roots of virtue. You need this. Yeah? So you could say Pranidhada is going for refuge, effective going for refuge, and then you need virtue. You need to do all that, and everything else comes from there. But then the third thing in this five- or six-fold path in the Shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra is... If a son or daughter of good family hears the name of the Blessed One, Amitayas, and if their minds become absorbed by it, absorbed for one night, two nights, three nights, four nights, five nights, six nights, seven nights, if their minds become undistractedly absorbed by it, then, when they die, Amitayas, surrounded by his Sangha of Shravakas and accompanied by his assembly of Bodhisattvas, will appear before them and they will die with an undistorted mind. When they die, they will be born in the Buddha field of the Tathagata Amitayas in the world system of Sukhavati. So, there's your stages of the path. Let's just go through them. Pranidhada, heartfelt desire. Practice of ethics. Practice of ethics uh, leading all the way up to here because then you become absorbed in the name of uh, Amitayas for seven nights. So absorption takes all this up here up to absorption and then you die. Yeah. So die is spiritual death and you'll be met by Amitabha and his Sangha of Shravakas and Bodhisattvas and you'll die with an undistorted mind. Undistorted mind means undistorted by um, delusions. So you'll be born with insight. Yeah. So you've got this... One of the things I'm very interested in with the Pure Land Sutras is much of Bhante's teaching you can find in those Pure Land Sutras. Spiritual death is here. Spiritual rebirth is here. From here upwards, you're in the Pure Land. This is the pure land. This is the impure land. And this is the pure land. This is Sukhavati's pure land. Uh, and I think that's all I want to say this morning. <laughs> <laughs>